Chris, how's it going? Good. How are you? Welcome to Washington D.C., the belly of the beast. Oh well, thank you. It's been a, it's been a while since I've I've been in town, so it's good to be here with you. Yeah, I think we we started talking when your last book came out, and we never got around to to doing a show. But but I feel like uh, your your body of work on the subject of sort of applying Austrian economics and public choice theory to uh, the military and policing is is something I'm very passionate about and sure and uh, I always I always tell people particularly like w when classical liberals say that there are there are necessary functions of government um, defending us from enemies um, uh, foreign and domestic and certainly when conservatives sort of fall into that sort of knee-jerk reaction defending the military and defending the police no matter what I always I always tell them um, understand that the government can fail particularly on the things that we need it to do. And, and we all know, like, uh, we all criticize the welfare state and, and other sort of uh, perversions of, of government incentives. But, but when it comes to these functions, like, there's some, some pretty horrible uh, perversions that have happened behind the scenes, and you've documented all of that. Yeah, I've tried. And, and, and actually, it's, it's some, in some sense, it's even worse. It's, it's all of the kind of worst aspects of government that people fe fear we should expect to be of, of enormous magnitude when it comes to matters of the national security state, when it comes to matters of policing and so on. Uh, and, and so you're right that you know many people who otherwise are highly skeptical of government when it comes to matters of education, when it comes to matters of social security, health care, uh, and, and of course there's running jokes about the DMV, yet they, they are quite comfortable picking up that same kind of structure, scaling it up to an enormous magnitude, giving it weapons and saying, okay, just protect us or just go over there now and, and build a healthcare system, build an education system, build a DMV and so on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, my skepticism of these things uh, emerges out of kind of a symmetry of treatment of these issues, um, whether, whether it's in one area of government or another. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, in, in matters of, of national security, the, the issues are typically magnified greatly. Um, let's, let's tell people about you a little bit before we dive a little bit deeper into that. Sure. Um, you are a professor of economics at George Mason University, and you have a bunch of fancy titles that go along with that. Like all academics, yes. Yeah. We collect titles. Yeah, uh, I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University. Um, and uh, let's see, just a, a little bit of background. You know, I, I came, grew up in New York City, and actually my, my undergraduate professor was Peter Betke, who you recently had on the show. And Pete is when the he was teaching at NYU. Uh, oh, actually, Manhattan College. So in okay. between NYU and then George Mason, he was at Manhattan College for a year, which is where I went to undergraduate. And I just happened to take two electives with him: comparative economic systems and public finance. And in those two classes, I was introduced on, in the comparative class to Mises and Hayek on on the issues of the socialist calculation debate. And in the public finance class, I was introduced to James Buchanan, Gordon Tullock, and kind of the public choice tradition. This changed my life um, in terms of just the way I, I thought about the world, in terms of how I understood economics as a field of study. Pete moved to George Mason. Uh, I worked in finance for a couple of years down in the Wall Street area after I graduated. Uh, kept in touch with Pete, and then I, I came back to study at George Mason for my P master's and PhD. And my, my first semester in, in grad school, there was the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, one of those uh, hit the Pentagon not too far from where George Mason is located. Uh, soon after that, the U.S. government invades uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and uh, that was kind of it for me. I always had a, a, an interest in foreign policy, but seeing these uh, invasions happen, seeing the Patriot Act be passed very quickly with, with 
literally no debate, uh, just a massive uh, expansion of government power. Uh, raised a number of red flags, but really the, the thing that stood out to me was the U.S. government was making these grandiose claims about rebuilding countries, rebuilding the Middle East. Uh, but there was no talk about, well, what kind of knowledge would you need in order to design a, a society from the top down, wholesale? What kind of incentives would be necessary, both in Washington, D.C., but also for all kind of the stakeholders abroad? And so that really was the impetus behind my, my study of these topics. Um, I started by, by focusing on the limits of U.S. government intervention abroad, nation building, um, things that fall under the purview of human, what are called what's called humanitarian action, aid, and, and these type of things. Uh, and then over the past couple of years, I've shifted to focus of, of the effects of a massive military apparatus on domestic life, on domestic liberty, domestic freedom, uh, and so on. So I always say that that like whenever I approach. A, an issue that I don't know anything about, and there's probably radical uncertainty surrounding this, uh, most re recently with COVID, but, but going back to 9-11 to and, and the, the war on terror, um, I always take sort of the fundamental Austrian insight, the knowledge problem, and then I overlay it with the fundamental insight of public choice theory, which is the, the, the decision problem and the fact that that the actors in public life are just as as normal and self-interested as the rest of us. And that sounds like that's that's your entire framework for looking at these issues. Certainly. And so it's the merging of these true tradi traditions and, and the expansion of them slightly because, you know, the Austrian critique, the knowledge problem critique, the, the way that Mises originally laid it out was in the context of, of central planning under kind of a, a socialist regime. Could you abolish private property rights? Could you abolish money and then allocate resources to their highest valued use? And certainly that's relevant. But there's another knowledge problem at work here, which is can you design the overarching institutions of society itself. So this isn't my statement of the desired ends, it's the statement of US policymakers, which is to spread democracy, to spread liberty, to spread freedom, and so on. And so then you have to ask yourself, well, well do people know what it takes to actually design sustainable institutions that would generate these things? And then design resource allocations within those things, of course, which is the, the Austrian focus typically. And so in the realm of, of, of what falls under the purview of nation building, the knowledge problem is, is there's multiple levels to it, and it's really complex, and it turns out people don't know how to do these things. Uh, and so in some sense, this is a fool's errand to start, um, at least based on the stated ends of, of policymakers, uh, and I think you see that play out in practice. Yeah, I always think about uh, Hayek's notion of, of fatal conceit and you know his later work on sort of the evolution of institutions and and to take the American system, which is based on centuries, um, you know, maybe even millennia of, of social evolution of, and rules and, and our understanding of how we interact with each other and then to sort of airdrop it into Afghanistan and, and think magically that, oh, we had an election, everything's fine now. And that was, I guess, 22 years ago now. Yep. And um, arguably things are worse today than they were before we got involved. Yep, and so you're exactly right. And so anytime you try to impose any kind of overarching order, you're gonna to have to necessarily simplify down, to, simplify down to a few kind of overarching bullet points. You know, it should look like this, and as you pointed out, usually it's, there's metrics like an election is held. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, an election is, first of all, even holding an election logistically is quite hard in, in these places at the national level. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it literally ignores centuries of history that you can somehow jam 
national level institutions on top of these real existing organizational structures. Something like Afghanistan's never had a national government the way we would think about it uh, in America. Uh, even if we could agree in America how it should look, which of course there's debate there. Um, right. There's a lot of dysfunction, uh, even domestically. Uh, and, and so, you know, that, that leads you into a kind of a tough situation if you're a policymaker, which is that you either give up the game, so you say we can't do this and you leave, or you jam it. You jam it on top of an existing structure, but there's going to be a disconnect between that structure and the underlying realities, in which case you either have to enfor uh, force it uh, at gunpoint, which then it's no longer liberalism. Right. Because you are you are imposing freedom at the point of a gun, uh, uh, or uh, you have to be willing to slaughter people, yeah. uh, and and so uh, uh, it, it's fundamentally an illiberal exercise in the name of liberalism. And this is one Sorry, of the, we we have guests. Oh on the no, show, wonderful! Um, this is one of the issues I have with many classical liberals and conservatives who endorse these type of projects. Is they fu are fundamentally illiberal and they're undertaking the name of liberalism and I think they do a great disservice to the liberal project uh, because they, they, they hijack that language of liberalism uh, but they're, they're actually doing the exact opposite. Yeah and, and you, your, some of your early re research as I recall was looking at what, what I called the, the development industrial complex all these uh, NGOs and it very much in collusion with, with governments that are, that are trying to solve the question of poverty with essentially central planning. That's right. And this is really where the Austrian critique comes in, which is what is development? What, what is entailed in making people better off? And it is a process of discovery. It is a process of coordination. It is not some pre-existing end that is out there to be uh, imposed upon other people. But that's how it's treated. Uh, because the minute you try to impose these things, you need some way to do it. And so you typically tip pick observable metrics. You'll see things like number of schools built, number, uh, you know, uh, uh, miles of roads paved, uh, uh, number of hospitals built or, or amount of money spent. But none of these things are measures of development unless they're used in a way that actually makes people better off. Uh, and even if in Afghanistan now you see people in Washington, D.C. kind of clinging to these kind of last vestiges of, of success or why the U.S. government needs to stand, they'll say things like, well, you see these improvements in this in these small number of cases, whether it's women's rights, and they'll kind of cherry pick these very small cases, which are highly dubious in themselves, whether they're actually, actually measured correctly. Uh, but that aside, uh, there's no semblance of any kind of sustainable development. Um, that doesn't mean people haven't been made better off, uh, but oftentimes the people that are made better off are, are the people that have contracted with government. And this yeah. goes to your point yeah. about the development industrial complex, which is that, you know, I remember reading a report by, by the inspector general of the Afghan reconstruction of, of a soybean uh, factory that was built in Afghanistan. And the Soybean Association, I didn't even know there was such a thing, contracted with them. Well, it turns out this structure was built for this plant, but it sat empty because there's no demand whatsoever for soybeans in Afghanistan. There, uh, the soil is not conducive to growing soybeans. And so this was all just a, 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 a shell game. It was the transferring of, of millions of dollars. Uh, uh, the members of this association and other contractors lined their pockets at, at the expense of American taxpayers. Uh, and it did nothing at all. Yeah. To, to provide security, to provide development or anything else. And, and you can just find example after example of this. That's sort of that's sort of the one two punch of the Austrian public choice critique is that, first of all, you don't know enough to redesign an infinitely complex economy that you actually don't know anything about, in this case, Afghanistan. And second, like politics is a horrible way to 
to allocate resources because I didn't even know that story, but apparently the, the soybean lobby's got juice. Yep. And um, that the legislation and the allocation of those those contracts has nothing to do with what the free choices of the Afghani people might have been otherwise. And I, I feel like we've probably poured a lot of cement. Um, there must be a cement pours association as well um, that have made total bank in Afghanistan. Oh, certainly. And, you know, you can, this isn't a new thing either. If you want to just look back at the last two decades, um, there, there's plenty of examples, but you can go back to the Helmand Valley region in Afghanistan. Uh, back in the in the uh, uh, 60s and 70s, there was an effort by the international development community to create a little America in Afghanistan. This is their language. And they said, well, we're just going to pick up Western ways of farming, Western ways of, of infrastructure, and put them in uh, Afghanistan, the Helmand region, and create development. And this is one of the most infamous development projects. And uh, it was a disaster. And so they built these canals. Uh, they never kind of worked. Um, and those canals actually still exist. They were used by uh, a cover by the various insurgents in Afghanistan that were shooting at, at U.S. troops in the most uh, recent ongoing occupation. Uh, and so this is not a new thing. Uh, it's a it's 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 based not in kind of first principles of, of 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 markets or liberalism or libertarianism. It's just the industrial organization of government. If you have a massive bureaucratic apparatus, and you give them a lot of resources, they're going to spend it as quickly as possible. They're not going to be concerned about waste. There's no profit loss to judge how to allocate those resources, and there's very little accountability in in the face of of, of massive waste. And in many cases, it's not just waste. It's that those resources are funneled into the hands of the people that are doing the most harm in those societies. Yeah. And, and so in many cases, actually not injecting the funds in the first place would make people better off. And, you know, talking about Afghanistan, one of I think one of the most stark examples of this is the U.S. effort to er eradicate poppy in Afghanistan, which was a, a, a it was and is a, a literal disaster. Uh, and, and if if you were just going to pick kind of one example to illustrate just the 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 disaster that that effort was I th I would highlight that yeah I want to focus on your your last two books but that's a, that's a great framing for for these two specific research projects and and the one and and you'll have to correct the titles but the not not the one that's about to come out but the one preceding that is is about how for our foreign policy and and democracy building overseas has created an apparatus that has militarized how we treat our own citizens, not just policing, but surveillance and, and this whole um, shocking infrastructure that, that people just don't talk about that yeah, much. What right. was the title of that book? So the title of the book is Tyranny Comes Home, uh, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. It's co-authored with Abigail Hall, who's a, a longtime collaborator of mine. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, you know, we talk about this idea of, we, we call it the boomerang effect. And of course, a well-thrown boomerang returns to the thrower. And uh, we're not the first to point this out. Many people warned about, about this issue that when you adopt a militaristic, aggressive foreign policy, it has real effects on domestic life. And so kind of returning to where you started, a lot of people frame the military, the national security state, as protecting us. They say, well, you need this apparatus in order to protect the person and property of citizens. If, if the U.S. government doesn't do it or the government doesn't do it at a national level, who's going to? You have collective action problems, you have public good issues, so they, they have to, to offer this. And, and many of our heroes, Milton Friedman, James Buchanan, F.A. Hayek, they all subscribe to this view. They, they believed in a very kind of 
limited role, what they call the limited role for government, but the things they typically highlighted, national security, police, and courts, among some other things, depending on the, on the thinker. But in any case, you know, what we've tried to point out is that you can't separate these things. That when you, when you adopt a certain mindset, which you have to adopt in order to be proactive abroad, in order to maintain the empire apparatus that the, the US government has established and, and maintains, it has domestic effects. And two of the main drivers that have really brought those home are the 9-11 attacks in response, which you mentioned earlier, the war, what's often called the war on terror, but even before that, the war on drugs. And the reason why is because both of those wars are a, a, a very elastic notion of war. There's no clear enemy. There's, it's unclear what victory would ever look like. Uh, uh, you know, terror throughout human history has, has been a social constant. So it's unclear what eradicating terrorism would, would mean or look like or if it's even possible. Like, likewise, it's unclear what eradicating drugs, what would winning the war on drugs even look like in reality. The, the, the issue, of course, is that these are open-ended wars and the entire world is the battlefield and everyone is a suspect uh, uh, including u.s persons citizens and non-citizens uh, and you observe that you observe that certainly after the 9-11 attacks and the u.s government's response you observe it in the militarization of police as you mentioned which again had started in the late 60s uh, and then into the 70s when the war on drugs was first established and it ramped up over time uh, and 9-11 and was kind of just the latest reiteration of scaling that up the, the transfer of military equipment to uh, domestic police forces in the name of combating drugs and terror. Uh, the surveillance state, uh, uh, which again, uh, uh, really started back uh, all the way in the early 1900s. Uh, many people don't know the history, but it grew over time. And then with advances in technology, uh, really uh, now has, has matured in a way where the US government has one of, if the, not the most powerful surveillance apparatus in the history of humankind. Uh, some might argue that, that China can compete for that title, uh, but it's clearly a, a, a one-two ranking in whatever order you put it in. Uh, we're we're so, trying. We're, yeah, we're, certainly. We're certainly. definitely trying to be number one. Certainly. And, and what's so dangerous about this, in addition to the ability to surveil ordinary people, is that it's, it's covert. There, there's no way for people to observe it, even members of Congress, because people say, well, Congress is going to check them. You have these oversight committees. Uh, uh, but they are limited in their access to, to, to seeing this. And you saw this with the Snowden revelations. Of course, you saw it in the 70s with the, with the whole church committee uh, when, you, when you had the revelation of all the, the various nefarious activities undertaken by uh, the, the FBI, the CIA, and so on, spying on both domestic and foreign persons, whether it was civil rights leaders, anti-war leaders, and even members of Congress. Uh, and uh, so this is not like a new phenomenon. And again, it's very logical if you think about it. If you concentrate a significant amount of power you have massive information asymmetries. That is, the, the people that possess that power have information that citizens don't have, that members of Congress don't have, and then they can use that power in the name of, of, of secrecy. And then anytime you try to call them on that, you say, no, it's, it has to be confidential in the name of national security. And then, of course, when whistleblowers reveal the information, they're tarnished as having blood on their hands, as threatening national security, and so on. Even when they reveal clearly illegal and nefarious acts by those that possess that power, you get exactly what you, you would expect. Yeah. So I've made this argument again and again, and it's frustrating how few people understand in the context of, of proposed vaccination passports. And I try, to, I try to compare it to the Chinese social credit system, and it's the same infrastructure. It's the same sort of uh, 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 symbiotic relationship between um, nominally private corporations in China and the government. 
and and everyone's like well in this case it, it it's okay and i'm like well if it's okay in this instance what's going to happen 20 years from now 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 that you've built that infrastructure and has sort of acknowledged that that the government can collect healthcare data like all of that stuff and and people and including libertarians um conservatives progressives the, the whole spectrum they have this blind spot they don't think out into the future like if we if we create this tool this weapon um it's ultimately going to be perverted and used against us somehow that we can't even imagine yeah that's exactly right and, and it's it is hard for people to grasp you know f.a hayek in in the third volume of law legislation and liberty makes this distinction between principle and expediency. And he says, look, a free society, in order to maintain a free society, you have to have certain principles that govern that order, and then you have to stick to them. The, the challenge of maintaining both those principles and a free society, Hayek argues, is expediency, which is people are, the people in power and people that are, are lobbying those in power are always going to be able to promise you concrete stuff. And the one of the, the, the most fundamental arguments for a free society is the open-endedness of it. The fact that it allows people to be who they want to be. It allows them to flourish both as individuals, to become the person they want to become, but also in doing that to innovate, to discover, to experiment things that makes human civilization what it is and benefits us all. And so Hayek says, look, people are going to say, well, if you just give me a little more power, I can give you more security. Uh, uh, I can give you X, Y, and Z. But Hayek says, you're giving up the game. And they come back and say, well, what are you going to give us? How, how's that going to be provided if we give you? An, and Hayek says, I don't know. Uh, but that's why I want freedom. That's why I want liberty, precisely because I don't know. Uh, but you don't know either. And so it, it's, a tough, it's a tough position for, for, for those of us who, who adhere to those principles of free society to uphold. Because when you get into these discussions, as you're saying, you know, they say, well, it's not a big deal now. Uh, but Hayek's point is, well, what about next year? What about five years? What about 10 years? You know, one way to think about it, it's not the only way to think about it. I, I like this thought experiment that the philosopher, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume went through. It's called Hume's pl Political Maxim. And, and, and Hume said, when we're thinking about different constitutional rules, he put it in terms of constitutional rules, but it doesn't have to be. It's more widely applicable. Think about what would happen if the knave was in power. In, in, in other terms, think about like your least favorite politician, whether it's a real world politician or a hypothetical politician, and imagine they were wielding that power over you and other people. Would you want that person to, to wield that, that power? And again, that doesn't answer all the questions, but it, it should give you pause. If, if you identify that person, you say, well, wait a second. Uh, I, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't want that person wielding this power over me, whether it's access to medical records, whether it's access to your email, whether it's access to your, your travel uh, or, 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 or information on your cell phone. Or anything else, uh, and of course, a standard response of many people is, "Well, I have nothing to hide, you know, so so why not?" And 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 that's a, a poor form of argumentation if, if you're concerned about freedom, uh, because of course, uh, the 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 core idea is that it's no one's business. Even if you have nothing to hide, it's no one's business. Uh, that's kind of one of the defining features of a, a free society: is that you have your private sphere, uh, and that and, and other people aren't allowed to to interfere in that private sphere. Uh, of course, you can tell people things if you so choose, uh, but, but there should be no kind of systematic coercive means for people to intervene in that private sphere to gather information, whether you have anything to hide or not. That's not the question. You know, I was kind of hoping that um, the Trump years for all of the hysteria and chaos would um, teach people about politics without romance, to borrow Buchanan's phrase. 
Um, but I'm not sure that actually happened. And, and their response instead was, no, 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 we, we, we want to continue to pursue Camelot. We just have to win the political fight so that our guy has that power and, and, and we trust our guy. That's exactly right. You know, one of the things, and, and you know, I, I'm not a Trump opponent. I wasn't an Obama fan. I, I, I don't like either of, the, either of the main parties or, or what they stand for. Um, so I have no dog in that hunt. But one of the things that really bothered me about the whole Trump fiasco, and he, he was an outlier on certain margins. On other margins, people pretended like he was an outlier, but he was just doing business as usual. He, yeah. he, he was more vocal about it and, and, and rude about it, perhaps. Uh, and, but in some sense, he just pulled back the curtain uh, 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 like the Wizard of Oz. So you got to see the kind of It seemed more operation. stylistic to me than— So he liked the polish in many ways yeah. that, that, you know, where, 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 where many politicians are sticking their hand in, you know, in your pocket with one hand and then shaking your hand with the other or patting you on the head and telling you how great they are on the other. Uh, but in any case, it, one of the effects it had, it seems to me, is it normalized that— kind of normal the, the sticking the hand with one sticking your hand in your pocket with one hand and, and shaking around with the other where, where when biden got elected it's people are so excited it wasn't trump that they were will they're willing to forego and forgive a lot of things and the same thing happened by the way this isn't uh, you know just this instance i mean think about george uh, uh, bush and obama when george bush was in office remember not far from where we're sitting right now there was a huge anti-war movement outside the white house there was a huge anti-war movement Bush leaves, Obama comes in, it basically disappears almost overnight. Uh, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Yeah. Uh, uh, who escalated the drone war, made what it is today. And people point to certain things pulling back on troop levels. Oh, this is a joke. You know, like so, somehow, uh, you know, the Obama administration was this radical group that somehow curtailed U.S. Uh, interventionism abroad. Uh, anyone that pays attention to these things, it's nothing of the sort. Uh, and yeah. of course, leverage the Espionage Act more than uh, any administration in the history of the United States in a way that it wasn't intended. Uh, again, shows, to, to your point earlier, the long-lasting effects of government policy. You have the Espionage Act passed in 1917, uh, so, so related to World War I, it sits on the books, uh, and then the Obama administration starts using it. In what regard? Leaking of information, uh, journalists and so on, which wasn't the initial intention. And so it's just another example of how when you give the government power, even if it's it's dormant, in this case for decades, it can be used by future uh, administrations uh, for their own narrow purposes and in the process undermine uh, liberty. Yeah. Um, and so the, this is the concern. You know, the, the one, one of your uh, points in the book we're talking about is that um, when we go to war, and you know, uh, Oceania has always been at war with East Asia, so we're always yep. at war, and it, it could be the war on poverty or the war on drugs or, or the war on terror. Um, but particularly when we go overseas and we're, we're fighting the bad guys, the, the military has a blank check. The sorts of things that it can do over there are things that would not be readily accepted in American democratic society. Um, but when they're done, they bring it back home and you've, you've, created, you've created this machine, all of these interests, um, very, very lucrative uh, business contracts and that stuff doesn't go away. So like things that we would, um, let's say conservatives in this case, things that conservatives would be comfortable doing to the enemy, um, they come back and do it to us. And, and it's hard, once you, once you get into those sort of public choice dynamics, it's, 
it's hard to unwrap that stuff. Once you've built the monster, it's hard, it's hard to shut the monster down. That's exactly right. And you can't keep it just abroad. That's not how it operates. And so the first thing to keep mind going back to a point we raised earlier is that interventionism, the reliance on force, on the political instrument of coercion requires a certain mindset. It requires a mindset that is comfortable with imposing a view on other human beings. It, 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 it relies on a mindset that uh, uh, is uh, very arrogant, that the people in power, a small group of elites has the uh, knowledge, the scientific knowledge to design the world the way they want. This is your point earlier about Hayek's fatal conceit, which is the belief that people have the knowledge and ability to impose their view of the world uh, uh, on people. Uh, again, Hayek was talking about the economy, but why stop there? It's no different than going around the world to spread democracy. It, it assumes that you know how to spread democracy uh, and you know what democracy looks like everywhere and how it should look. Um, but also it requires a willingness um, to train human beings to do great harm to other human beings, either actively or as a backstop of, of, of if they don't follow what you're saying or, or when they react because the, the view here is the, the world is kind of a global chessboard, if you will. I'm going to move pawns around to the pawns around to do what I want. But of course, they're human beings uh, and, and, and human beings tend not to like being told what to do, told not like to be forced to, to do uh, 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 things they don't want to do. So they're going to react. If you occupy a country, even if your intent, stated intentions are uh, benevolent for the sake of discussion, the people on the ground won't view it that way. Uh, imagine, you know, one of the kind of thought experiments I do is, well, think about when there's unrest in, in the United States. Go, think about Portland. What if, like, uh, you know, Afghanistan sent their army over and said, well, the U.S. government has spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars training the U.S. Ar uh, Afghanistan army. Let's send a peacekeeping force over to Portland to restore order. And I, I don't think U.S. citizens would like that. Uh, uh, and so, uh, anyway, people react to that, respond to that. And then you have to say, well, we're going to impose uh, force on them in order to, to kind of squelch the insurgency? Uh, or, uh, you know, are we going to back off? And if you look at the, the language of politicians, and it's bipartisan, they, they talk in this way which captures this mindset. You know, you can find many quotes from Bush, from Obama, where they said things like, we gave Afghan citizens the chance to be free, as if they bestowed some kind of gift on a child on Christmas morning and the child, you know, rejected their gift, as in how dare you? They can't fathom the idea that, well, we sent an army over and they didn't want an army there. And so rather than self-reflecting, looking in the mirror and saying, well, maybe it's not a good idea to, to, to intervene in, in another society and try to impose something upon them, they blame the people being intervened upon. And I think that captures the interventionist mindset. But then what happens, of course, is when that ends, whether you're preparing for the intervention or you carry it out, all the people involved, they don't just disappear. Their mindset doesn't disappear. The skills don't disappear. They come back home. They go into policing. They go into policy making. They go into starting private firms that then consult with government. And the mindset then is, is carried home. And if you look at a lot of things that exist today in American society, you see these partnerships between former members of the military and the national security state. And many private firms brag about these things. They'll say, you know, we hire X amount of military veterans and they kind of advertise these things as, as being pro-American. Uh, but, but again, it very rarely do, do people talk about the consequences of this. What happens when you take the military mindset and what that requires and you bring it into domestic life? I had a, um, so we're, we, we're, we did this documentary on restorative justice and 
and I've gotten to know a number of members of, of law enforcement who are very much open to this idea. And one of them recently told me that the reason that she likes restorative justice is that she doesn't immediately have to think of citizens as the enemy. And, and that, like, that phrase sticks with me, that the idea that somehow law enforcement would view citizens ever as the enemy, but like the absurdity of, of seeing like uh, all this military gear, they're, they're decked out in riot gear, they, they look like soldiers, they're driving things that look like tanks, and they're, they got all of these cool new toys, and it just feels like they're itching to use them. They, they, want, they want to engage, yeah. and that all feeds from this, this horrible cycle in this machine you know we we produce all these things uh, american defense contractors manufacturers and we we need war but we need we need new markets we 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 got to do them and, and apparently that's where that comes from right yeah oh yeah and so you know if you if you look at the history of this so so the you know there's always been a, an element of of militarization of police from the start there's always that tension of how do you empower government and constrain it so that's always been there but really this really started ramping up in the in the 60s you had the the race riots out in los angeles and and you get the formation of the first swat team in the late 60s the swat team the very purpose of it was to import military tactics it, it was vietnam vets that started the the swat teams um the first swat team and the purpose was we're only going to use it for very limited purposes um but uh, as you were pointing out earlier with government, uh, the minute you give it power, it's not like it's like, OK, we're just going to use it and then let it sit there. Yeah. They, they itch to use these things. And of course, it expanded over time. Now you have uh, uh, SWAT teams across the country. You have tens of thousands of ra uh, raids a year. Uh, uh, and, and they're used not to restore order in terms of, you know, massive riots and, and chaos, uh, but for things like carrying out no knock raids. Uh, uh, no knock raids, of course, are, are warrants that allow members of law enforcement to enter someone's property without knocking. The idea is that they will try to destroy the drugs uh, uh, if you knock and announce yourself. Uh, and, and so uh, the problem, of course, is when you kick in someone's front door without them knowing it, they also oftentimes think that some, there's a criminal coming to their house and they shoot them or try to shoot them. So the response to that was, well, we need to ramp up uh, uh, bulletproof vests, ma uh, machine guns, uh, and all this mil equipment. Where do you get that from? The military. And that's exactly what happened. So this started really uh, uh, under Reagan. Uh, that's where this starts uh, with the war on drugs. Because, of course, what happens is you, and this is like Econ 101, right? You make something illegal. You attract criminals, high time preference people who are willing to resort to violence in order to enforce contracts because you can't rely on, on the legal system, the, the, the above the ground legal system. Uh, so that then incentivizes violence. And they would say, well, look, it's unfair that you have these these drug gangs that have machine guns and we have a, 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 a billy club or, or a pistol. So we need machine guns. Where do you get the machine guns from? Well, they're sitting in a warehouse, their old military equipment. And so you start transferring it. Uh, and, it, and it's not, you know, to go to your point about using it, uh, there was a requirement. I don't know if it still exists, but there was actually a requirement that in, in order to maintain the equipment that was transferred, you had to use it once a year. So the police departments had to use it once a year. So it's not just they were itching to use it. They actually bureaucratically were required to use it. Uh, and so this transforms the entire mentality. And I, I think this is an important point. It's one that's been highlighted by the journalist Radley Balco, who's done great work on yeah. the militarization of police, which is people tend to think about militarization of as purely equipment 
And that's part of it. And I don't want to downplay that, but it's a mentality too. And this is the point you were just raising a few moments ago of how do you view the citizenry? Do you view it as to protect and serve? Or do you view it, as you put it, as the enemy? Members of the military view enemies, and then enemies need to be destroyed. Member, that's not what policing is supposed to be. Yeah. And so there's this broader transformation, and, and, and that can't be easily changed. It's not the kind of thing, you know, oftentimes policymakers kind of pay lip service to this. Obama, uh, towards the end of his term, put some restraints on place in the, in the transfer of military equipment. They were marginal. Of course, Trump just undid them through executive order, so... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Biden's continued it. So. So like and, and libertarians have pointed it is this out with uh, the murder of George Floyd and the murder of Breonna Taylor. Um, there was a lot of heat and sort of partisan tribal back and forth and and accusations of systemic racism. But the policy process has not produced a single systemic fix to these problems. And and we've we've done nothing about no knock raids. We've done nothing about militarization of police, um, or uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, not liability, but uh, immunity. Yeah, qualified immunity. Qualified immunity. Yep. Um, and you know, ostensibly, one of these two parties actually wants to do something, but but instead we just gin people up and feed feed the beast. Yep. Well, the one area where there has been marginal changes, uh, certainly in some states, is is um, civil asset forfeiture or policing for profit. Yeah. And so, so some places have put uh, in place limits on that, which is a great first move. And again, this this all comes out of the drug war, this idea that if local local police, um, and, and this is tied up in militarization of police, so they get this equipment, they can stop people, they can seize their assets based on suspicion. So you have money with you. Let's say you're carrying thousands of dollars in cash, and I stop you, I'm a police officer, and I say, that's weird you're carrying $5,000 in cash. I don't carry $5,000 in cash. You must be a drug dealer. I'm taking this. Uh, and you say, well, wait a second. What about due process? And they say, sure, you prove that you're not a drug dealer, uh, which, of course, flips over how we tend to think about due process, right? You're, yeah. instead, you, you are guilty until you prove, you prove yourself to be innocent. Uh, and you hear these horror stories of, of, of these, you know, kind of mom and pop restaurants that are all cash businesses, and they're driving to deposit the money. And they're stopped and they seize $10,000 and they say, well, prove it. It's like, well, I can't prove it. I have no money to hire a lawyer. And if I get tied up in the courts for, for you know, two, five, ten years, uh, I have no business anymore. Uh, and it's just these life-destroying things. And, of course, they split the money. That's the policing for profit. So the federal government split it with these local police, which incentivizes the confiscation of, re of, of assets, yeah. uh, which is fundamentally at odds with a free society. Yeah. And so, um, you know, all of these things are, are extremely dangerous. Uh, uh, to freedom, um, and so one, you know, for all the all the negative aspects and the and the kind of which which are many, and and the machinery, as you put it, kind of keeps churning, and that's one of the hard things. The incentive to ever really change this is is oftentimes weak, um, and it's something I've wrestled with, and I, I don't know that I have a good answer to it, um, but I don't think it's going to come from inside that machinery, because yeah. no one in the machinery has an incentive to change their behavior. Yeah, the the only answer, and I heard you say this once, is uh, is is people people need to uh, take the responsibility to get become educated yep. on all of this stuff and it's a it's a burden for sure to to understand what's really going on but in, unless people are vigilant the machine turns on that's exactly right and and part of that and again this is oftentimes what troubles me about classical liberals conservatives who say well we're minimal government except for this is they're not thinking creatively because they they kind of have this 
Goldilocks type view of, well, with military spending, there's, even if they say there's too much, they'll say, we just need a little less. Uh, uh, but how's that going to come about? And, and, and even if you could get a little less, uh, that, that might last for a day or two, uh, given the incentives inherent yeah. here. So we need to think a little harder about alternatives to these things as well. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that's an underexplored area intellectually. Um, but not just among academics. This is, is too important to be left up just to academics. We need creative people at all different uh, kind of in all different areas of life to think of these things. Yeah. Um, but but there's many ways to provide security. There's many ways to provide defense. Um, and uh, I think again for the, for the careful thinker, these are evident. Yeah. You know, think about 9/11. The the U.S. government has a massive apparatus that is meant to protect the U.S. people even before the the Department of Homeland Security created in the wake of 9/11, and it failed. It failed the U.S. people. Uh, and so what happens? Well, the 9-11 attacks happen. During 9-11, if you actually pay attention to what's going on, there's massive chaos in the United States government. Who stop, who's the only uh, source of stopping one of the hijackers? People on Flight 93 who came together and downed the plane. So they sacrificed their lives in order to stop the hijackers. Uh, it wasn't members of the U.S. government. Uh, they were running around dazed and confused. Uh, you get the underwear bomber. You get the shoe bomber. All these folks got through U.S. Uh, airport security. It was private citizens that stopped them. Uh, and, of course, that's not a panacea, but it does make you stop and think for a moment, well, wait a second. I thought people were helpless to protect themselves. It doesn't yeah. appear that that's the case at all yeah. uh, if you actually think about it for a little bit. Kind of, kind of the ultimate argument for uh, the Second Amendment um, as well, like the, the being ready to defend yourself at that moment is something that is very difficult to replicate through for, through policing, but I want to I want to pivot because sure. I, I want to get to the new book, um, and your new book is about military propaganda, and I was thinking specifically of comic books, but but give us the title of this one, and tell us where we can pre-order it because it and when it comes out and all that stuff. Sure, sure. The title is Manufacturing Militarism. Uh, it's a play on, on Noam Chomsky's famous uh, book on manufacturing consent, uh, that the play on the title. Yeah. Uh, again, it's with Abigail Hall. Uh, it's coming out early August, and uh, it's available on Amazon. It's published by Stanford University Press, uh, and it will be available in, in paperback and, and Kindle um, when it comes out. And uh, you know, the, the core idea and, and, and what led us to this is that, again, studying and just thinking about the operation of, of the national security state, and, and we're repeatedly told that this security state is looking out for us. It's protecting our person and property. But just a skim of the headlines and paying attention, you realize that so much of what falls under the purview, again, I always hesitate to call it limited government because when you actually start unpacking what's involved in these things, it's, it's the most unlimited apparatus you can actually think of. Um, and, uh, and, and you start paying attention to it. And they have information that you and I can't have. It's what economists call information asymmetries. When one party has information, the other party doesn't have. And all of these things are intensified in the national security state. So during the, the, the Cold War, all of these new checks were put in place to classify information. Uh, and the idea was to keep the hand, this national security information out of the hands of, of communists and communist sympathizers. But of course, when you give people in government the power to classify information, are they only going to do it in those rare instances when there's true national security threat? Of course not. They can just classify whatever they want. So if they don't want people, whether it's citizens, whether it's members of Congress who aren't congressional oversight committees, to have access to information, they can simply say it's classified for national security purposes. And you and I as citizens have no recourse whatsoever. And so what is that? What type of environment does that create? Well, let's think about it. You have a, a, a annual apparatus 
that totals over a trillion dollars a year. You have massive amounts of power and force, both domestically and internationally, and you can hide information from people. Well, that's going to lead to an array of very perverse outcomes. And so what, what Abby and I explore in this new book is how the U.S. government, we focus on the, on the war on terror, so, so the, the post-9-11 period, although you could apply this throughout U.S. history, of course, uh, has used its control over information to purposefully and systematically mislead the American people. Uh, and the U.S. government's gotten a little wiser in the way it does these things. You know, during World War I, during World War II, and even after, um, the U.S. government explicitly engaged in propaganda. They had, uh, uh, they had, they set up a government agencies uh, that basically were, were tasked with controlling the flow of news, control of information, uh, as you put comic books, posters, movies, uh, all of these things. Uh, and they don't do that anymore. They don't have an explicit arm that, that is focused on, on propaganda, but they still engage in propaganda. Uh, they still engage in, in the selective flow of information, but a lot of it's kind of covert. And so, of course, with the lead up to the Iraq war, with all the, the misleading information about the weapons of mass destruction, um, and then after uh, the invasion, you had uh, members of the Bush administration literally planting kind of talking points and, and supposedly objective experts on, on cable news programs, which would then parrot the talking points of the White House, which, which then would be used by Bush, Cheney, and everyone else to say, see, the New York Times said this, or this expert said this on Fox News, uh, uh, or, or MSNBC, it must be true. Yeah. Uh, and so you had this weird kind of circular flow of information that all kind of went to the center. And there's no way for, for an ordinary citizen to, to unpack this. Yeah. And like, the, like as a customer, the war state, uh, war as a business is a very lucrative and attractive thing. And, and, and I think you talk about the professional football as an example and the national anthem and, and all of the pro-military stuff that, that you that you see and hear either at a game or when you're watching TV. Right, that, that's right. So, so anyone that's been to a sporting event uh, has experienced this. And we've almost become numb to it. We just sit there with our beer and, and hot dog and they go through the motions and, and we stand up during the, the national anthem. But there's always these military kind of celebrations. They honor certain people. They have things like these, these um, reunions with family members uh, and so on. And this is all a form of propaganda. It is a way of indoctrinating people, making them comfortable with, with the military as part of life. And if you push back against these things, if you don't stand up, you're viewed as being unpatriotic. You're viewed as being un-American somehow. Uh, again, people that have walked through airports, certainly here in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, because you, you see soldiers passing through in uniform, people will, will clap for them. People will uh, uh, buy them meals and thank them for their service. Uh, and, and again, it, it somehow if you don't participate in these rituals, you, you are viewed as, as uh, not caring about America or, or its values or being anti-military, whatever that means. And uh, to our way of thinking, this is highly problematic. Because a citizenry of a free society, part of that means being skeptical. And, you know, Randolph Bourne, a lot of classical liberals and libertarians love, you know, quoting Bourne on war is the health of the state. We got, hopefully people have read the essay or will read the essay because uh, the title's great, of course. But in that essay, Bourne makes a distinction between the state and country. Country is the common set of values and community that people share in, in, in some geographic space. The state is the political coercive apparatus 
that uh, uh, allows politicians to do stuff. It's the political machinery. So war is the health of that political machinery. Bourne points out that a person that lives in a geographic space in a country can simultaneously love their country but despise the state. And in fact, a good citizen is open to that possibility because the state, the political machinery, poses a threat to the country. So it is true that the political machinery can protect person and property, but it's also true they can undermine those things and often do. And so in Bourne's rendering, the, the, the well-functioning citizenry is skeptical of that state apparatus. And there's all these moves that are made to numb people to that, to uh, uh, make them comfortable with the political machinery. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so what happened is the Department of Defense uh, uh, paid the NFL and several other sports leagues as well to, to hold these events. Uh, uh, and uh, this eventually came to light, and, and the NFL and, and I think the NHL as well gave back some of the money. But these things continue. Um, and again, most people just take them for granted. And uh, again, to the point where they're almost mind-numbing in a way. We don't even pay attention to it anymore. Yeah. Like it, and it wouldn't have to come officially from the U.S. government. Uh, uh, Bataglia was telling me before we started that apparently there's a now abandoned, there was a, it's now abandoned, but there was a partnership between Northrop Grumman and Marvel, um, which, which goes back, like this goes back to the original Superman and, and Captain America, and it was always um, a propaganda piece for, for the military, but you know, it doesn't have to be propaganda coming directly from. He just he just wants to hang out. No, I'm, I'm a cat person. I have two cats. So. Yeah, so he knows. Um, <laughs> Probably smells them. Yep. And by the way, uh, cat cats are libertarians. By the way, <laughs> the Iran deal was another example with the media parroting. The, the Obama administration bragged about how easy it was to get the media to drag their whole Iran deal line. Yeah. Uh, give us. Give us some other examples from the book <laughs> and try, try to pretend that this is a serious conversation. <laughs> well, uh, so, so we talk, we have two chapters on Iraq, one on the lead up to the war and then one um, to, the, to the aftermath of the war because the Bush administration needed the public to maintain support for the war as things were going terribly wrong and became obvious. Uh, but other examples we talk about in the book are the are sports um, and then uh, the TSA. You know, again, think about when you go to the airport, uh, you know, you, you, there's the minute you step foot in the airport, you're kind of bombarded by imagery and recordings of, you know, uh, be aware of suspicious people around you. Uh, be aware of leaving your bag. Um, uh, take off your shoes. You have the whole move to, you know, with the toiletries of three ounces and less. Yeah. I mean, none of these things increase security. They're, 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 it's a theater. It's just what's called, you know, the, the random security swiping theater. of hands. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, we talk about in the book, and, and this is well known, again, to people that pay attention, that there, there's been um, uh, efforts to smuggle. Every once in a while, they'll test the TSA. So they'll, they'll try to smuggle through knives, uh, banned items. And, and the failure rate is enormous. You know, like something like 80-something percent they, they fail. I mean, it's not doing anything right. um, to, to enhance security. But, again, you would think that uh, uh, tra air travel is like the most dangerous thing in the world. Uh, and, 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 and all of us, in some sense, have been or attempted to be cultivated to be kind of the eyes of the government. This is the whole, if you see something, say something, which, again, has been throughout U.S. history. You go back to the Cold War. There was this whole move 
about you know uh, uh, you know loose lips sink ships and look you know if you see suspicious people report them and all this yeah. so there's that you know talking about comics we talk about Hollywood uh, and, and 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 so uh, you know we, we talk about some movies in there and again people say this isn't a big deal well it it is a big deal because in our or in our day-to-day life we're kind of bombarded with these messages and we don't think about them and so one of the movies we talk about is Transformers and you say Transformers that's like a Michael Bay flick with a great action movie you know Megan Fox you know and, and it's great right if you like those kind of movies well what what has happened is Hollywood partners with the Department of Defense and really what the Department of Defense does is ended up subsidizing the movie so they give them access to military personnel military equipment military bases in order to film but in exchange for that, they get to see the script. And they don't censor it, but they make recommendations. Yeah. And they always leave themselves an out where if they're unhappy with the script, they can renege on the deal. And so it's not official censorship or, 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 or input, but suggestions. Uh, and you can imagine what happens. And we talk about this in the book where, where you get a changing of anything that makes the members of the military look bad or the U.S. military make look bad or weak gets scrapped. And it gets replaced by... Uh, 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 you know, either language uh, or uh, so in the script, what's spoken or imagery that makes the U.S. military look strong, uh, never makes mistakes and so on and so forth. This reminds me of uh, the, the brouhaha on, on social media this week is uh, John Cena, who's in the Fast and the Furious number 55 or yep. whatever we're at now, um, had to do this, this, this public struggle session apologizing to the Chinese government for acknowledging that Taiwan is a country. That's right. And it's the same damn thing because yep. it's just like money for them. It's like that they, they don't want to give up the Chinese market. So so the, the Chinese communist government has, has literal censorship abilities, even though it's not explicit. Yeah. And they, you know, again, the, the this is not obvious unless you pay attention, because even if the U.S. government isn't actively censoring, because of information asymmetries, they can do things like limit access to journalists. Yeah. So if you if you report in a in an unfavorable manner, they can just not give you access to to to, to certain policymakers. Um, you know, one of the big things, of course, in, in last several conflicts has been embedded journalists. So they embed journalists with a uh, uh, members a military unit in, yeah. in a battlefield, uh, and and oftentimes these things are very curated. But on top of that, journalists who have been in these situations say this is not real reporting because we would never badmouth the people we are embedded with for two reasons. Number one, we become somewhat close to them because we're living with them day and night. And number two, we rely on them for protecting us. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're, we, these things are highly skewed and they give viewers, consumers, citizens, a very biased view of what's happening uh, abroad. Uh, and so, you know, the media is often quite complicit with, with the government. Not always, but oftentimes. And, uh, you know, this has been well documented by, by members of the media. Yeah, it seems like, and I want to ask you about this because I think one of your earliest works was on the, the need for a free and independent media to, to reign in government. And it doesn't really feel that way anymore. It feels like um, a lot of mainstream media, um, and I would include Fox News in this, and I, I don't use mainstream media as a way that Trump would, but it seems like they're all cheerleaders for um, the state, not the country, but the state. Certainly. I don't know if it's all of them, but it's certainly a, a large number of them. Um, and so this has always been a challenge. And so, you know, the, the whole idea of, of media and free media, there's, there's 
for, for a long while, there's been debates over this when it comes to state power, private power. Of course, Noam Chomsky, who we brought up earlier, long was of the position where corporations uh, purchase media and then use them to, to kind of manipulate the, the populace to, to, to do the bidding of corporations. Uh, and that, that's one of his concerns. And other people hold that view as well. And so certainly members of the media can be both manipulated, but also also actively participate as arms of the government. I, I don't want to make it sound like they're just passive actors that get tricked. Oftentimes they're actively doing it. Uh, and so you can have a combination of those things. But then that, so where does it leave us? My view is still on this, although not perfect, I would always pick more openness as compared to less. And so, you know, one of the, the concerns, you know, people would say things during Trump, for instance, oh, you can have kind of these social media movements that provide misinformation. I say, yeah, of course, that's just part of a, a free society. But I'd still always pick that as compared to the alternative, which is having state, the state regulated. Yeah. Uh, because I, I do not trust the, the state at the national level, certainly, to regulate or control the media in any kind of way that's going to make it, it freer or, or more effective uh, in terms of communicating in, uh, relevant information to the populace. And so given all those imperfections, I still would pick, uh, you know, openness, contestability. And with technology now, lots of different people can have these conversations. They can be exposed to different things. And that contestability I, of ideas, I think, is important. I also think whistleblowers are, are crucially important. Yeah, and that, that gets us back to sort of Austrian 101, that uh, that the problem with central planning, and let's say the central planner in this case is Walter Cronkite, um, or I don't know who the the, the modern equivalent is, um, we always look at a bottom-up approach because if Walter fails, we all failed. That's right. But if if some random guy on Twitter fails, it, it almost doesn't matter because you have this, this ongoing conversation that taps into the local knowledge. Um, let's, uh, let's wrap up, and uh, what you can't leave until Rourke is done with his map, <laughs> unfortunately. But uh, you... Um, I want to give people some resources. I always try to provide some uh, some light reading for people. But you and Peter Betke um, just fairly recently released a, a primer, a collection of readings on Austrian economics. Tell us about that one. Yeah, thank you. The, 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 the title of the monograph is um, Essential Austrian Economics. Uh, it's published by the Fraser Institute, which is a, a think tank in Canada. And uh, it's, it's, it's very accessible. It's written to be accessible. Um, and it's about 68, 80 pages. Uh, and each chapter is a short overview of eight or nine key propositions that constitute Austrian economics. And, and there's a, kind of a history, a brief history, then a discussion of methodology, and then things like business cycle, government interventionism, entrepreneurship, and so on. Um, it's available both the Fraser Institute website. It's available on Amazon uh, at zero price. Um, you can download the Kindle edition. Um, the PDFs available online free as well, um, and they also made some videos. Um, Fraser didn't, so it's it's very nicely done, uh, and it's meant to be a nice entry point for either kind of a beginner level or someone that has kind of a, a, a baseline understanding of Austrian economics. And you you have a personal website, and and the, you know the Hayek Center at George Mason is producing a bunch of stuff as well. Where where can we find that? Sure. So so Ccoin.com is my personal website. That's all my academic writings. It has. Um, the, the various interviews I do like this, um, I'll, I'll post it on if people are interested. And then the, the Hayek program um, at the Mercatus Center um, also has a website. If, if people just Google Hayek program, George Mason will come up. And uh, all the, the academic resources are there um, and links to them. Uh, but also we, we have a podcast, um, the Hayek program podcast, which has a variety of different scholars um, and, and uh, intellectuals on it. It's meant to be accessible, but also 
uh, you know, it has a, it has a, a, an academic bent, of course, to it as well. And so, you know, if interested uh, uh, viewers or listeners can go check that out. I'm sure they'll find something on there because there's such a wide variety of topics that there's something for everyone. And give us a new book title coming out in August. Sure. Uh, uh, the title is Manufacturing Militarism, uh, U.S. Government Propaganda in the War on Terror. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Seriously, you can't leave. <laughs> that was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.